Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. What's more American than baseball and apple pie? Well, perhaps the one thing that falls into that category is the sanctity and continuity of the United States Constitution. Abuse of power is clearly an impeachable offense under the Constitution. The investigations were designed solely to help his personal interests, not our national interests. There was a corrupt deal, an Oval Office meeting, quid pro quo. It seems like Groundhog's Day in the Senate. Rinse it, recycle it, and repeat it. If we thought witnesses were not necessary, we would not bring witnesses ourselves unless we thought that there was a need for witnesses. If if the other side were to get witnesses, we would have a series of witnesses. But we are nowhere near that process yet. I thought our team did a very good job, but honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. This week, Democratic House managers began their prosecution of President Donald Trump in the Senate impeachment trial. Thursday's hearing ended with a closing argument from Democratic Rep. Adam Schiff. Because right matters, and the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. But with all that happening, we spent the week a thousand miles west of Washington, D.C., in Iowa. The Iowa weather was 13. Come to Des Moines for a radio show. Why? Well, on February 3rd, the most active and politically engaged Democrats across the state will head to their local precincts to caucus. They cast the first votes in the 2020 nominating contest. And in Iowa, it sounded a bit more like this. The events of this past week brought devastating clarity on just how dangerous this president is for our national security. Andrew Yang has given me and nine other Americans $1,000 a month. I'll never give ambassadorships to unqualified donors just because they wrote me fat checks. I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message. I was born here in Ames, Iowa, a long time ago. And uh, we're here with uh, a passion for politics and an interest in finding the best candidates. It's not just about the Republicans. It's about each and every single one of us making a wise choice. I'm a Joe Biden fan. You are? Absolutely. He's honest. I had a favorite and a number two just in case. I personally do not think that we have the best process of choosing. I think that there are a lot of flaws in that. I've seen everybody but Buttigieg. We need a, a unification of purpose involving justice for everybody. The number one question for most is, can I see this person defeating Donald Trump? Can I see this person as a good president? We spent a lot of time traveling the state in sub-zero temperatures, mind you. I think my toes are still frozen. And talked to lots of folks who are as involved and engaged in politics as anyone. And you know what? No one we talked to raised the issue that's taking up all the political oxygen and energy in Washington. Neither did the candidates. 
To be fair, we only talk to Democrats since they're the ones with the competitive process. And since all the 2020 candidates are on the same page on impeachment, they're spending their energy focusing on the differences between them. And it doesn't mean that voters in the state or the candidates don't care about impeachment or that it's irrelevant. It's just that, like many of us who follow politics for a living, they are well aware of the political reality. Republicans are unified in support of the president. There's simply no chance that 20 Republican senators will vote to convict and remove him from office. So if you're an Iowa Democrat, the most important issue for you right now is to pick the candidate who has the best chance to beat President Trump in November. And that challenge is overwhelming to many of the Iowans we talked with. I'm technically undecided. I've been thinking that I'm leaning towards either Warren or Klobuchar. But I think today, Biden really surprised me. Well, I did have one particular in mind, which is Bernie Sanders. But there's three of them, after I heard about there's three of them now that I'm kind of torn with. I am currently on an undecided panel, but uh, this form here has certainly narrowed it down to three. People, they knock on your door, they make their pitch, they they ask you who you're going to caucus for. Not only do they want to know who you're going to caucus for, they want to know who your second choice is. So I'm just still sitting back, just observing what they have to say, um, along with my family members and peers as well. So we traveled to snowy Iowa, hoping to get some clarity on the race and on the outsized role the state plays in our elections. We left with a better understanding of the state, its voters, and the issues that drive them. But we don't have any better idea of who will win the Democratic caucus than before we got there. During the four days we were in Iowa, so was every major candidate who plans to compete in Iowa. Our first stop was to the woman whose job it is to try and answer the question, who's going to win? Jayanne Selzer, who was gracious enough to welcome us into her office on a frigid Sunday morning in West Des Moines. We are now how many days out? Less than three weeks, let's call it. Let's do. Tomorrow, let's, I believe it will be two weeks. Two weeks, officially. In political circles, Ann Selzer is famous. The Selzer poll is known as the gold standard in measuring how Iowans are feeling about candidates. In 2008, she predicted the surge for Barack Obama of first-time caucus-goers. And now, every election, all eyes are on Anne. As soon as the alert goes out that there will be a new Des Moines Register, Selzer poll, all of the political universe starts buzzing. Well, and they show up in my Twitter feed, and they show up in my inbox, and they're calling me on the phone, and they want to talk about it. They're, they're already wanting to talk to me about a lot of things. And I have work to do. <laughs> so. Oh, so I have to be a little bit choosy. But there, somebody said to me that when we release polls, it is the most important political document on the planet, which that's a bit of an exaggeration. But people do pay attention to the caucuses and what's going to happen, and therefore to our poll. And all I can do is hope that, that when we've put that poll to bed, I've taken my best shot. I've done everything I could to have a most solid estimate, and polls are estimates, of what's going to happen on caucus night. Because the most recent poll really suggests it's anybody's game. That's right. We've all been hearing about expectations for turnout this year. Turnout is a big deal because the caucus is such a labor-intensive process. It attracts a relatively small number of voters. 
And so even a small surge of new voters, those we don't count on showing up in the first place, can make a huge difference, especially in a race that is as close as this one. We're not seeing at this point a big number of first-time caucus goers. It's about what it was in 2016. But keep in mind, there are more people who've attended caucus in the past than there were in 2016. So it's a little hard to judge that number. And in 2008, we did not see that spike in first-time caucus goers until our final poll. The most recent poll and the one my conversation with Anne focused on was released on Friday, January 10th. That poll had Senator Bernie Sanders on top with 20 percent of likely Democratic caucus voters naming him as their first choice. But three other candidates were close behind and bunched tightly together, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Joe Biden. I was curious what the data from the January 10th poll tells us about the possible movement of the candidates and where they could find additional support. There's a theory that while Sanders has a very solid group of supporters, he's at or close to the ceiling. He can't break into voters who aren't already in his camp. I asked Anne if her data supports that theory. Well, he has the strongest group of people who say that they are extremely enthusiastic and that their minds are made up. So there's this very solid core. He also does best with first-time caucus goers. So the strategy for that campaign may be to say, look, we're not going to convert people to Bernie Sanders who are already planning to caucus for somebody else. We've got to go find new caucus goers, and that's how they will increase their numbers. And what about the other candidates and their their floor in ceiling, their ability to expand or not their their voting universe? Well, I'm going to contrast this with Pete Buttigieg. And at one time, he led our poll and in fact was a standalone leader, uh, not so very long ago in November. But there underneath his candidacy is a question mark about whether they think he could almost certainly defeat Donald Trump. This is where Joe Biden does especially well. It's where Pete Buttigieg is weak. So as the caucuses grow near and the, the, the solemnness that sort of takes over caucus goers, there's a real wish when I just listen to people. They want to make the right choice. How are voters actually processing these candidates, do you think? What is most important is to choose a candidate who will be able to defeat Donald Trump. Now, there are some that say, no, I really want a candidate who aligns on my issues. And that's where you see, you know, people fitting into a word I don't like to use, a lane that way. But I think as they're watching these candidates, as they're going to events, as they're seeing the debates, the number one question for most is, can I see this person defeating Donald Trump? Can I see this person as a good president? So that that sort of tears down, you know, made up walls that sort of keep people in like These ideological, right. the idea that I will only vote for a moderate, or I'm only voting for somebody who defines themselves as liberal. That is sort of a made up. It's a little bit made up. So that we see in, in some of our polls that the people who have supported Pete Buttigieg, their, their second choice commonly is Elizabeth Warren. That's so right across those walls. They just dive over. Is there something about the second choice voters that tells you what we could expect to see 
on a, on caucus night? Well, we have four candidates who are in double digits, and the second choices divide among the same four candidates. So people say, well, is there a shot for Amy Klobuchar? Could she be that second choice? And she does reasonably well, but you do not see her able to muster enough through second choices because the second choices of the main people are going to go to the main people. So if they're viable, they're viable. And even if they weren't viable in a particular caucus, they're still going to go, mostly among those four candidates. There's also this assumption that the Warren and Sanders people, they split their vote among Warren and Sanders and the Biden and Buttigieg. Their second choice would be Biden or Buttigieg. Is is that true? That's a little oversimplified. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're trying to make people understand. Right. The question is, will the people who are leading right now, those four candidates, will they be the four candidates who come out of the caucuses with the most delegate equivalents or with the most raw votes? What we see in our polls so far is yes. <laughs> okay. Right. It's all, that summed it right up. Jan Selzer is the president of Selzer & Company and the director of the Des Moines Register, Mediacom, CNN, Iowa poll. And for those of you who are waiting, the last Selzer poll before the Iowa caucuses will be released on February 1st. Mark your calendars. While in Iowa, I had the opportunity to visit Des Moines and a few other metropolitan areas. And along the icy drives, I saw farms, factories, universities, and a number of businesses, large and small. Now, the notion that economic anxiety played a role in the 2016 election of Donald Trump is something I've heard over and over again. And so I wanted to take a look at the economy of a state who has an outsized influence on the rest of the primary season. To do this, I sat down with Dave Swenson. He lives in Ames, Iowa, and is an economist and professor at Iowa State University. Farming is not really the key industry in Iowa. It's manufacturing. It's also finance and insurance. Those are much larger industries than farming. Farmers are about 75,000 people in Iowa, and there's 2 million people that work in the state. So farming is important to the more rural parts of the state. The metropolitan economies, of course, are not going to be influenced so much by farming, and they're going to be influenced by more modern industrial growth categories. Again, business services, professional, scientific, technical job growth, IT, growth in healthcare and social assistance, those kinds of categories have been strong uh, job generators in the metropolitan areas. We were talking before this interview began about a study that you had authored about basically the two economies of Iowa. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we're really comparing the state of Iowa through the most recent year of data back to 2007. First of all, the metropolitan economies in Iowa have grown by about 9% over that time period. The rural economy has contracted about 2%, the non-metropolitan economy. The metropolitan economy is, is adding a lot of jobs in some of those high-growth categories like healthcare, social assistance, business finance. Does that help explain the success that Donald Trump has had in places that used to be Democratic, or do you think there's something else going on? Yeah, it gets more complicated than that. First of all, we have been tracking, there's been a consistent depopulation of rural Iowa. Last decade, two-thirds of the counties lost population. So we're having a systematic reduction in population. Now, what's going on with that 
population change is that younger, more talented, skilled people are finding jobs in metropolitan areas. Metropolitan areas out-compete them for wages. The rural areas, uh, you end up with fewer people with higher educations. You end up with somewhat of an older population, much more tied, again, to some of the historic industries, agriculture and manufacturing. And so they tend to vote more conservatively. And so you've got that going on. Does that explain the flip that happened in 2016? The statistics just don't tell me that that was enough to do the flip. There were other things going on. It had something to do with the candidate. It had something to do with the tenor of the times. But we don't have two or three variables that we can switch on and off and tell us how rural people vote. Too many people think there are, and they're not. And then there are the college towns, which you're from one of those in Ames. What does Ames, Iowa look like? Yeah, Ames, Iowa is booming. It's booming. And it's, uh, of course, we had strong growth in the university. And it's not just university and students coming, but it's also R&D that goes on in and around the university. But we have a lot of business activity that's being generated peripheral to the university. And that is generating housing growth, population growth, young people are moving and or staying in the community. Communities along the Mississippi River, and again, they get a lot of attention politically because those were the counties that flipped between Obama and Trump. Democrats are spending a lot of time looking at those and wondering if they will come back to the Democrats? Yeah, will they come back? That's a great question. If you if you start down at the southeast corner, you have a little micropolitan community called Keokuk. And I use it, and we've studied it quite a bit, I use it as an example of medium cities that are struggling, and a lot of people don't know what to do about them or with them. And again, I'm going to go back to this story. That's a town that was that was founded on primarily manufacturing. There was just manufacturing advantages. And so these communities had a footprint, a commercial footprint and a housing footprint that was based on a lot of workers. Over time, all of those industries needed fewer and fewer workers. And yet it still has that physical footprint. And so they go through a cycle of degradation, disinvestment, blight, starts to happen, and then these communities struggle. And every one of those communities going up the Mississippi River has gone through that kind of a cycle, all the way to Keokuk and Burlington and Muscatine. Um, You can go through the Quad Cities and see parts of it on the Illinois side and then on up to Clinton. If you go up the Illinois River or up the Ohio River, you're going to see the same types of things. So you have these communities that used to have strong labor bases, sometimes really stalwart Democratic machines that would turn out the voters, a lot of that has changed over time. In these communities, you do not get the kind of both economic and social dynamism that probably leads to a lot of political activism. These are people that are on their heels. They're they're basically just trying to get along, trying to restore their community, trying to just keep things moving. So that's what's going on in a lot of those communities. Now, they will just give me hell for having said this about how tough it is in those communities, but it is. It is tough. We have 15 micropolitan cities in Iowa, um, or regions in Iowa. Ten of them are contracting. And the ones that I just talked about, Keokuk and, and Clinton, those areas are contracting the most. 
And where are the ones that are succeeding? What are the micro? We have very few that are succeeding. Okay, we have one up in northwest Iowa, Okoboji. That's a resort area, a recreation area. It's a retirement area. It doesn't count. We have another one, Storm Lake, Iowa. It's up in northwest Iowa. It's got a packing house. It's got some stability. It's attracted a lot of diverse people to work in that packing house. It shows some stability. It's not necessarily growing. It's just not contracting right now. And then the western part of the state, the farther west you go, the more Republican. It is. West of Des Moines. It becomes more Republican the more miles you go from the central cities, no matter what. But it becomes much more conservative. The more rural, the more ag-dependent, the much more likely you're going to see stalwart Republican support out in those rural areas. Tell us about the candidates that do well in a Democratic caucus. First of all, organize, organize, organize. And to be able to organize out in some of these rural areas, you really do have to tap into the right people to make sure that you're getting the people to do both the organizing and or to represent your candidate once it comes caucus time. The candidates all like to talk about how many counties they visited. Of course, the big, you know, the big story is going to be how many you're going to be able to draw out of the big cities. And everybody lands in Des Moines and everybody leaves Des Moines. And of course, they visit the other places. But this really is Caucus Central right here in central Iowa. Dave Swenson is an economist and a professor at Iowa State University. You know, there are a lot of stereotypes about Iowa. It's flat, it's rural, it's cold, its population is old and white. In short, it's not exactly an accurate stand-in for a typical American state. We spent Martin Luther King Day in Des Moines at the Brown and Black Forum, the nation's oldest minority-focused presidential forum. Correspondents from Vice News interviewed presidential candidates. We talked to some of the voters who turned out to see them to discuss racial issues that Iowa um, residents face within the urban communities. And while the state is 90 percent white, there are individual cities in the state that are more diverse. Waterloo is a metropolitan city just about two hours northeast of Des Moines. And in this city, where 17 percent of the population is African-American, we also found a divide among its political and social leaders over which Democrat would be the strongest nominee. To begin, I sat down with Quentin Hart. He's the first African-American mayor of the city, and he's in his third term. His family moved to the city in the 60s in pursuit of work. He talked to me about the city's attempt to diversify its economy that has been, up until now, heavily reliant on manufacturing. Recently, he's decided to endorse Pete Buttigieg, another mayor of an economically struggling, mid-sized, Midwestern city. I sat down to talk with him about how he came to that decision. I had the pleasure of meeting Pete probably about a year and a half ago prior Uh, to the announcement of running for president and met him working with the group called the Accelerator for America. Our conversation was focused on African-American issues. We're having a deep conversation about South Bend and then Waterloo. And then we start talking like, whoa, there's a lot of similarities between two of our communities. You know, you don't think of uh, huge minority communities in Indiana, period, except Indianapolis. And then I hear about South Bend and about 40 percent um, would be considered people of color. Then I hear about how the African-Americans within his community and their label at one point of not being a good place for African-Americans to live. Then I hear about the overlap when the same conversation happened about, you know, about Waterloo, Iowa. 
And in our conversations, talk about some of the systemic practices that were put in place before either one of us had become mayor. But regardless, it is our responsibility at that point to deal with what we have in front of us. So in June, Mayor Pete came here and we toured downtown Waterloo and we looked at the bridges and our challenges with infrastructure that we have. So I believe a mayor's perspective and dynamic on the situations and challenges we face are important. We're up close and personal with people on a real personal basis. And so that perspective, combined with military experience, combined with seeing the Douglas Plan, which addresses not only intermediate challenges, but tries to work to overcome the systemic barriers that we face for minorities in entrepreneurship and home ownership and student loans. But that is who I've chosen right now uh, to be to be president. So so you know that one of the criticisms of Mayor Pete Buttigieg is his lack of support among African-Americans. Can you speak to that and why you think that is and what you think you can do as an African-American mayor of a most diverse city in the state. (laughs) One thing I can do is make sure that we know the truth about what's actually taking place because the media is saying a whole lot about African-Americans don't do this, African-Americans don't do that. The point is people may not know, Pete. I have been noticing with regards to overall media from our large media outlets in this conversation, and that is make sure that the litmus test that we've given to Mayor Pete is the same litmus test that we give to every every candidate, because some candidates may have had uh, things that they have put in place in the past that have detrimental impacts on the lives of African-Americans. So the same litmus test that folks are giving Mayor Pete, just make sure it's applied to all candidates. You had talked earlier about the fact that you and Mayor Pete had sort of bonded at earlier mayoral conferences. There are a lot of similarities between your two cities. You also have the similarities, too, with the challenges of a police force that it's overwhelmingly white in in South Bend and here in relationship with the black community. Can you you talk to to those challenges? Obviously, Mayor Pete, there's been a lot of spotlight on him and what had happened um, in his community last year. I know that in Waterloo, there's also been challenges between the police department and African Americans (laughs) and you. So tell me how that fits into all of this. I do know how it is to live within a community where there's distrust between African Americans and law enforcement. And I have had the experiences where some situations we had had boiled to the top and you needed to make tough decisions. But, you know, just like, you know, taking a look at some of the things that he's done um, throughout his city, like bringing uh, my brother's keepers uh, to the city by um, taking a look at the creation of an overall manual for officer uh, conduct, um, taking a look at the Board of Public 
public safety that he's worked with by appointing a majority minority board compromise of um, racially diverse uh, members. So there have been some things that have taken place, but just like uh, South Bend is probably like Waterloo, there's still uh, so much more to actually go uh, within the community as well. Take a look at, you know, also some of the other candidates that, you know, he's he's drawing more ire about his situation as being mayor of South Bend and some of the other candidates have taken with regards to some initiatives and practices that they put in place within their own communities that on a larger scale have impacted negatively uh, more lives of black blacks within their community. So but the challenge is, yes, in some of the communities, some of the candidates have had uh, challenges. But the question is, what are you going to do today? And that's why when we take a look at overall, one of the first in the entire race to put out a plan for black America was Mayor Pete. And I think there was release of another plan, maybe today or before that, but he was the first one to put out a plan, the first one that's willing to stand up and be accountable uh, for some of the challenges he's had. Mayor Pete could do really well in Iowa, Mm -hmm. but he does so because Iowa's overwhelmingly white, and he does really well in these communities that are white, college-educated, maybe more affluent, but his ability to expand outside of that um, circle is difficult. So does he need to do well in a place like Waterloo to dispel this image that's out there right now? The last forum that I went to was, you know, last week, there were over a thousand people there. And And where where was this? Was this here? That was at, at the University of Northern Iowa, which is 12 minutes away from here. I mean, there were people, old, young, black, white, Latino. You had a mix of people at this event and people that were excited, that hung on every word. You know, you had some in there that were still trying to make a decision. So they wanted to come out and they wanted to hear because people are still actually excited, even though it's been what? I don't know. It seems like it's been forever, but people are still excited. And then when you take a look at maybe where he's polling at some other places and whether it's 2% with this group, he wasn't polling anything last year. They didn't even know about him. So what we what we've been trying to do here um, when when he was there, they've been hosting small groups of people so that they can continue not just in the large group, but in the small groups, have real honest conversation and dialogues. Like, why did you do this? Why did you make that decision with regards to a chief? Why did you make this decision? So he he's been held accountable uh, in audiences and crowds, and he's done a done an incredible job of taking responsibility. You, you know, people want to be inspired. You know, they want to buy into something that they believe that may be greater than themselves, and that's the feel that we have right now within the caucuses. And he's been able to do a good job at connecting all those dots. Mayor Hart, thank you so much for talking with us. Really appreciate you giving us this time. Thank you. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. 
Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. While we were here in Waterloo, we sat down with another leader from the community. My name is Dr. Franz Whitfield, and uh, I'm the pastor here at uh, Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Waterloo, Iowa. We found Pastor Whitfield after services on Sunday afternoon in his office adjacent to the church sanctuary. And he has a different take on the Democratic primary than the mayor. I'm very excited um, that uh, I've been able to uh, come out and endorse uh, the vice president. Um, Me and uh, Vice President Biden had a chance to uh, talk uh, several months uh, before um, I had came out and endorsed him uh, during the uh, July 4th holiday. I decided uh, to come out and endorse because uh, right now our country is in what I call a moral demise uh, with the president that we have in the White House. And we need a leader uh, who is trustworthy and a leader who is electable. And I think out of uh, the current candidates that we have in the race, I think that Joe Biden is the best one uh, to win uh, not only the nomination, uh, but to go up against uh, President Trump on the debate stage and win the election uh, come November and and go to the White House. Why do you think uh, the vice president continues to do so well with African-American voters. And there's a lot a lot of theories about this. One, he was the vice president to the first mm-hmm. African-American president yeah. as being the, the major factor there. And this is especially true considering that as senator, his record on some really important issues, whether it's the crime bill, there was a whole discussion about busing, his positions on on some other issues – would seem to be out of step with where a lot of African-American voters are. So can you help us understand why you are supporting him and why you think he's still getting that level of support right now among African-American mm-hmm. voters? Just piggybacking off, off what you said, um, I think that one of the you know major reasons why he's doing so well amongst African-Americans is because uh, he served under uh, an Obama administration. And uh, I know that, you know, we've heard all kinds of things said about the vice president and still are hearing them, which is, you know, something that you're just, you know, used to. Um, but uh, I really honestly don't think that President Obama would have picked the vice president to uh, be in his administration, you know, if he felt like he was going to uh, have a disconnect between the administration and the African-American community. And uh, if he was, you know, such a bad person as people, you know, try to make him be. So I think that's one of the major reasons. But um, one of the second reasons why I think he's doing so well uh, is because one of the major things that really uh, is strong to the African-American community is their faith. And uh, that's actually one of the first things that me and the vice president talked to uh, when we spoke was about his faith. And he talked about uh, how as a child when he was growing up, how, you know, he attended a black church. But not only that, 
Um, he talked about the fact of him losing his wife and child in a car accident and uh, how his faith was shaken during that time. Um, but he said he realized that God had been a major part of his life and without him, he never would have been able to make it uh, through that experience that he went through with his family. So I think uh, his faith is a major part. And uh, when you look at faith in the African-American community, faith for us goes back a long ways, even back to the civil rights movement. And so I think that's something that's major and something that really uh, touches the hearts of, of people of our community. Now, I want to break in here for just a minute. There are a lot of Democrats that we talk to that worry that Biden will not be able to inspire younger voters of color. At the Brown and Black Forum in Des Moines on Martin Luther King Day, Antonia Hilton, a reporter for Vice News, directly addressed this with Biden. Why is Senator Sanders leading you with black voters under the age of 35? He is not leaving black voters under the age of... Uh, under, look, just all I know is I'm leading everybody combined with black voters. <laughs> I'm winning. You no, got I'm everybody. Yeah. Oh, t- wait, 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 wait. Let's get this straight. Name me anybody who has remotely close to the support I have of the African-American community now. Well, actually, Vice News just did a poll that showed that Sanders is a bit behind you, but he a does bit. have significant black support. I mean, but it's he's not a way behind me. He's way behind me. A bit and a ways. Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. <laughs> Give me a break. You, you know just, better. You come on, you, man, me? <laughs> you, you know better. You know better. There's a Uh reason why I have more support of elected black officials, three former um, members of the chair of the Black Caucus, black mayors. I mean, come on. On a very personal level, why do you think that black people like you so much? Because they know I know them and they know I care. I put the same question about enthusiasm among younger black voters to Pastor Whitfield. As a uh, a surrogate for the vice president across the state of Iowa and actually being able to be out there on the campaign trail with him, that's something that I see uh, personally when I'm with him of how he connects, not just with the older crowd, um, but with young people. It's out there, but, you know, we just won't see it, you know, on the news. So you're not you're not worried about the vice president's ability to generate enthusiasm and turnout if he's the nominee in November? No, no. I uh, I really honestly think that, uh, you know, we'll be surprised at, you know, how much support we'll see uh, coming from the uh, younger generation. They know what we need in our country, and uh, their candidate, you know, may be one who has already dropped out or who may drop out in the future. But I think that every day, The vice president wakes up and gets up out there on the campaign trail. Uh, They're hearing what he has to say. They're hearing the genuineness uh, in his voice when he speaks. And so it's continuing to resonate with them on a day-to-day basis. So uh, I think, you know, if it's, you know, not huge in Iowa, I think as we go on with New Hampshire and, you know, other states, uh, it's going to increase in in huge numbers. Do you think he can still succeed and win the nomination if he does not come in first at the caucus? I believe he can. You know, if you look at polling in uh, many of the other states, he's doing tremendously well. If he's not in first place, uh, he's at a close second. I think that if he does not win Iowa, I really feel like he has the strength to 
get the Democratic nomination and to uh, eventually win the uh, presidency. Dr. France Whitfield is the senior pastor at Mount Carmel Missionary Baptist Church in Waterloo, Iowa. One thing we heard a lot from Democrats in Iowa, and quite frankly, I hear from Democrats around the country, is a worry that the ultimate nominee will struggle to unite and rally the party in November. Still fresh in the mind of many Democrats is the 2016 primary fight that many blame for Hillary Clinton's loss that fall. Many Sanders supporters still harbor deep skepticism about the primary process that they feel is tilted toward establishment Democrats, while many former Hillary Clinton supporters remain convinced that Sanders' primary challenge damaged her enough to cost her the election. And you only need to scratch the surface to find that concern alive and well in 2020 in Iowa. That's where I talked to Myrna Price and Sarah Lewis as they waited in line for a Joe Biden community event on Tuesday afternoon at the Gateway Conference Center in Ames, Iowa. I'm here to hear Mr. Biden. Because you're still trying to figure out who you are going to support or you know who you're going to support? I know who. I'm definitely for him. How are other people in your life processing this field of candidates? There's a lot of people in running for president and running through Iowa right now. My husband is uh, older than I am, uh, so he is probably processing it differently than my children are. And my grandchildren uh, actually uh, have been asking me about it also. I have an 11-year-old granddaughter who has been asking me many questions about all that has been going on politically lately. And once in a while, um, some of those answers are a little bit puzzling for me to know exactly what to say to her, because obviously she is the future. So are you talking about, just in general, conversations about the president, about the Democrats? It's not just about the Democrats. It's not just about the Republicans. It's about each and every single one of us making a wise choice. Tell me how your children are thinking about this Democratic primary, if they're voting in the caucus. They're not all thinking alike. I have probably one who will probably vote Republican, and I have two that probably will vote Democratic. Do they like Joe Biden? Do they like other candidates? They, being younger, I think like other candidates. So you think that the divide between Biden and the other candidates, a lot of it's generational? Exactly. I think it is. Definitely. Yes. Which creates uh, a question in my mind, because if you're thinking of uh, Bernie... A lot of the younger people are totally behind Bernie, more so than for Biden, I believe. So you don't understand what younger folks see in Bernie? Or is it that you don't understand what they see in Bernie? I had a nice visit with Bernie because I went to school at the University of Vermont and I came upon him. My husband mentioned Burlington and he was, whoa, UVM, you know that. We had a very nice conversation. I think he's a very good man. I really do. But he split the party last time and I'm afraid that's happening again. That's exactly right. Do you feel that um, energy with young voters saying we're with Bernie no matter what, Bernie or bust, and you worry that maybe if he's not the nominee, 
what happens. My real hope is that, however, all, when when this is down to one candidate and this the Democrat against the Republican, that the Democrats all support the candidate, whoever the candidate is, and there's no division at that point, or they haven't got a chance, in my opinion. It's true. I totally agree. Do you do you feel? Is there some similarity to what we saw in 2016? I remember on caucus night in 2016, all of the Bernie folks and the Clinton folks not really trusting each other and what was happening and the trusting the process. You see that? I definitely see that. I was a captain at, at that, and I I definitely see that. I think we're having a repeat of what happened then. Frightening. I really do. And I think that's sad. Oh, I do. And frightening. Yes, exactly. The Sanders supporters we heard from were looking for something different someone to acknowledge the system was not working. And now, more than ever, we need a mass movement of working people, black and white and Latino, Asian American, Native American. We need millions of people to stand up, to look around them and to say, you know what? The status quo is not working. We caught up with Senator Sanders supporters at a rally Monday night at the State Historical Museum of Iowa in Des Moines. And based on the energy in that room, his message was resonating with people that were sick of a system that they thought was not working for them. He's building the multiracial movement of working class people. Away from fossil fuels and um, towards renewable energy and building millions of jobs in the process, which I think is amazing. Number one is Medicare for all. Honestly, it, more than any one issue is his theory of change. He knows that we need a movement to take on corporate power. He worries about working people. For too long, we've been stepped on by corporations. They've got away with not paying taxes without paying their fair share and just keeping the system in place where nobody can get ahead. 80% of workers are living paycheck to paycheck. So from Medicare for all to student loan debt to climate change, we need movement on all of these issues. And he's the only one saying a movement can build, bring these things, not the inside politics. Sanders and Biden represent two polls in this election. On one side is Biden, who's pledging stability and electability. His most recent ad tells voters, This is no time to take a risk. His message, at least at this point, is resonating strongest with older voters, many of whom prize electability above all else, and they worry that Sanders' policy agenda is too radical and off-putting for the swing voters who will decide the election. On the other side, it's Bernie Sanders wants to shake up the system and make big structural change. Young voters, as they had in 2016, have latched on to his message. If Biden's on the top of the ticket, they fear he will fail to inspire younger voters, especially younger voters of color, to turn out. In other words, it'll be a repeat of 2016. Right now, it's not clear which argument will win out. Next week, we'll bring you the story of how this process actually works and how that process itself has a very big influence on who will actually win the Iowa caucus. One more thing for me today. On Thursday, we lost a legend, journalist Jim Lehrer. 
For those of us of a certain age, we can still hear his signature opening to the PBS News broadcast. Good evening, I'm Jim Lara. It was a voice that signaled both strength and comfort. You could let out your breath and think, okay, Lara's going to help us understand all this crazy stuff that just happened. He was the rare journalist that both sides felt like they could trust, which is why he was chosen to moderate a record 12 presidential debates. For me, he was an icon and also a mentor. He brought me onto the news hour in the mid-2000s when I was just a young congressional analyst with almost no experience on TV. But he wasn't looking for flash. He wanted facts and insight and serious conversation. And he was gracious and kind to this rookie. He welcomed me into the PBS family, where I'm still lucky to be today. Thank you, Jim Lair, for the example you set in reporting on complex topics with clarity, purpose, and partiality. You will be missed. That's all for us today. Be sure to tune in next week. We have more from Iowa. We'll be exploring the caucus process, looking at what went wrong in 2016 and what changes the DNC has instituted for 2020. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about Iowa going first in this process? Is it time for Iowa to give up its hold on the top slot? Give us a call at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.